John chapter 11. We're going to lead, begin reading in verse 54 and we'll come down to the end of the chapter in verse 57. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye, uh, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, and that they might take him. I'll leave off reading there in verse 57. Actually, when I had finished up last Lord's Day in verse 54, I, I thought to jump over to and skip these verses. And, but I thought, well, I need to study them for my own personals to study to get through the chapter. I'm trying to get through the chapter. And as I began to study, I realized I can't, I can't skip them. <laughs> I don't want to skip them. <laughs> we closed last Sunday's message with John 11:54, telling you that when the highest levels of the Jew, Jewish leadership began to seek for a way to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, that he took his disciples into a wilderness area to spend the remaining time he had with them. What they did, what was said, how he prepared them for that which was coming is not recorded in John's Gospel. Some commentators say that the time frame of John eleven fifty four is about a month. Four weeks. Others say it might be as much as six weeks that they spent in the wilderness. Whatever the time, it was short. I told you last Lord's Day, his time is getting short. John 12 opens up, then, Je then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. And so time is getting short. The time of his crucifixion is coming. Uh, he spends a month, six weeks, he spends some time in the wilderness with his disciples and then shows up again in John chapter 12. But I want us to look at this section again this morning. And I want to look at it from some different perspectives. Besides the fact that he took his disciples into the wilderness to spend the short time that he had left with them, there are several other things I think we can learn from this scripture. First, we need to remember that our Lord had been sent by His Father to reveal the true and living God to Israel. To reveal God's true way of salvation to Israel. And to reveal what the Word of God said concerning God and His way of salvation and way of life. His mission as God's prophet was to bring the truth of the Word of God to the nation of Israel. To do that, he spoke openly and truthfully to them wherever he was. Whether he was in Judea or whether he was in Galilee, he spoke openly and plainly and truthfully to them. But now, John eleven fifty four opens up and says, He walked no more openly 
among the Jews. Now, he sh shuts that ministry off. He's no longer speaking the word of truth to those who do not want to hear it. He is no longer revealing himself to be God in the flesh to those who have been constantly rejecting him. He no longer does any work before those who despise him. There are no more works to prove that he is God's Messiah to the nation of Israel. The Jews' rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his message resulted in our Lord leaving them alone to their own ideas of religion, to their own ideas of God, and to their own ideas of God's will concerning His Son. They, he left them in their man-made religion with their idolatry and their religious traditions. And there are times when the Scriptures reveal that, reveal that God determines to leave sinners alone and to leave them to their own ideas of, what, of life and living. He does so. That's clear in the Word of God. But when He does so, He lives in, leaves them to the hardness of their hearts. He leaves them to the blindness of their eyes. He leaves them to the darkness of their own mind and understanding. And it is a, it is a horrible place to be. This truth is found in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Psalm 81, verse 11 and 12 says, But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. They wouldn't have anything to do with me. So, verse 12 says, I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Not in the counsel of the Word of God, but in their own counsels. The prophet Jeremiah the, that weeping prophet at the twelfth hour of Israel's destruction by the nation of Babylon. He says in Jeremiah 7 and verse 24, But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward, not forward, the word imagination there comes from a Hebrew word and means the stubbornness of their, he of their evil heart. They had, they had stubbornly rejected what God had said to them. They had hardened themselves and became obstinate. That's the Hebrew word, uh, English word for the Hebrew. They became obstinate, stubborn, and no longer wanted to listen to what God had to say. The prophet Hosea, some of the some of the most difficult words for me. I've only, I've read it often, and only once in my Christian ministry felt that this is what I should do. Hosea 4.17, Ephraim, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. What an amazing statement. Let him alone. Only once in my whole ministry of over 40 years has I felt like God said to me, just leave him alone. Otherwise, uh, the long-suffering of God has spurred me on to keep praying and to keep seeking and to keep asking that God may yet do something. But I know that God does sometimes say, that's it, leave him alone. Let him have what he wants. 
And it's a scary thing for me, and I don't want that for you or for myself. We also read of this same doctrine in the New Testament. We have uh, seen it already in John eleven fifty four. But, but do you remember the words of our Lord previous to this? Matthew chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, when He first sent the twelve out in the early days of His ministry. He says unto them, And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, or hear your words, when you depart out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Wow. He continues saying, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Shake off the dust of your feet is a, is a, is a, a colloquialism that, that means you just wipe the thing clean. Walk away. God will deal with it. In the book of Acts chapter 13, we see this developing in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Acts 13 in verse 45 through 47, we read, But when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy. This is the root, usually, of persecution. They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you, you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us. Why did he leave the Jews? Leave off preaching to the Jews and go to the Gentiles? Because God had commanded him. I, for so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to, the, to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. There are statements in the Scripture, both in the Old and New, that warn us that God sometimes leave people to themselves. We read in the Epistles, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28. Romans chapter 1, 24 says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Verse 28, 6 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. And verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God gave them over to that which they desired. And finally, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as things culminate at the end when the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. In 2 Thessalonians 2 in verse 9 through 12 we read, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2 9. Verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in, in them that perish. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They wouldn't receive what God was saying 
they rejected it and followed Satan instead. And so God comes, and for this cause, verse 11, God shall send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In the Old Testament and in the New, God warns us that there are times when God, who is of great mercy and of great grace and who is long-suffering and who has an affection for His creation, there are times when God says, I've done what I've done, and now they're on their own. But for His saints, it is different. It says in verse 54, He no longer walked openly among the Jews. But it says at the last part of the verse, He continued with His disciples. There are times when God determines to leave sinners to themselves. But there is never a time when God leaves His children alone. There is never a time that they are without Him, without a him being so close that they might just simply say, help Lord and find help. There is never a time that he leaves them without his word to counsel them and his spirit to direct their steps. His disciples, he continued with them. And the last thing that I want us to bring out of this text again this morning is that which we have already seen. And that is as God our Lord is in complete control of all the events, not only in the universe, but the events relating to His life and His death. And it was not yet the appointed time for our Lord to die. The Jews were stirred with renewed vigor and strength in their efforts to kill Him. He had escaped them before, and He would do so again. He would not show Himself again for some short time until he, John 12 opens up and he arrives back in Bethany and it is six days to the Passover. He chooses when he will reveal himself again to Israel and he comes at John chapter 12 in verse 1. Until then, he hid himself and his disciples in the wilderness and there he spent the last remaining few weeks with his disciples. Verse 55 says, The Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went up out of the country. Jesus went into the country, but many were coming out of the country into Jerusalem and there to celebrate the Passover and to purify themselves, the last, verse, the last words of that verse says. The Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, John says. And again, John mentions the Passover as the Jews' Passover. We've seen this before. We've already seen that when God instituted it, He called it the Lord's Passover. Exodus 12 and verse 11 and in many other places. But as, the, as God's religion began to degenerate and be turned into a man-made religion, it got changed from God's Passover, from the Lord's Passover to the Jews' Passover. They came to Jerusalem to purify themselves. This purification mentioned in verse 55 is ceremonial. What I mean by that it is uh, it's an outward cleansing. It's associated with being religiously pure, ready, being religiously ready to take the Passover. Outwardly pure enough to take the Passover. 
Remember, it's the time of the Passover. They're coming. They want to make themselves ready for it. All man-made religious efforts. Listen. All man-made religious efforts done to gain religious purity acceptable for a special religious occasion. We were just talking about that where some were observing the Feast of Tabernacles. We were just talking about that, observing a special religious occasion. All of their efforts are not successful for purifying the inside. All they can do is purify the outside. And that kind of activity is not acceptable to God. The Jews could not partake of the Passover if they were defiled by certain laws. You can read about them in the Old Testament. I thought about bringing some of them out this morning. I said, they just, they had their laws. So they went through various religious duties. A lot of them would come to the temple to offer a sacrifice for a sin offering or something, a peace offering to God. This was going on during the days that Christ was in Jerusalem. They were preparing themselves for the Passover. And while they were spending time purifying themselves, some of them were looking for the Lord Jesus Christ so they might turn him over to the Pharisees. They had been given commandment, as we saw in verse 57. Some of them were looking for the Lord Jesus Christ so they might partake in his killing. They were very careful, these Jews, to attend to religious ceremony, while at the same time there was this this boiling wickedness in their heart. This is a good definition of man-made religion. Even J.C. Ryle, um, who I respect greatly, although he's in error in some areas, but I respect him, says, the most of them, it may be feared, neither knew nor cared anything about inward purity. They made much ado about washings, etc., which formed the essence of popular Judaism, and yet they were willing in a few days to shed innocent blood. Strange as it may appear, these were appear these very sticklers for outward sanctification were found ready to do the will of the Pharisees and put Christ to death. These things are simple realities, he says. The hideous inconsistency of the Jewish formalists in our Lord's time has never been without a long succession of followers, as he writes in his time. If you want to read the full quote, you can. He's talking about Catholicism. A religion, he continues, which expends itself in zeal for outward formalities is utterly worthless in God's sight. The purity that God desires to see is not that of bodily washings and fastings of holy water and self-imposed asceticism, but purity of heart, end quote. I recommend you read, there's a, he had a whole lot more to say, and I shortened it down. They came to Jerusalem to purify themselves, to make ready for the Passover. And the next verse shows us that they sought for Jesus. Then sought they for Jesus. 
and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, what think ye, they would say, that he will not come to the feast? This is not the first time the Jews had spent time looking for the Lord Jesus Christ in order to find him that they might kill him. It happened before during the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. I think you might remember some of that. John 7:11 says, And the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And verse 12 of that chapter says, And there was much murmurings among the people concerning him. For some said he was a good, he was good, and others, nay, but he deceiveth the people. So you have this two groups that continually are present in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen throughout the, our study of the Gospel of John, there are two groups of people. They gather together, they have their conversations. Those conversations center on the Lord Jesus Christ. These two groups are present in the temple. They ask, what think you? Uh, will he not come to the feast? The question is, do you think he's going to come to the feast? There is one group gathered in the temple to offer sacrifices and to ensure they are purified for the Passover, but whose hearts are full of hatred toward the Lord Jesus Christ. These gathered in a temple to talk of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way as to strengthen their hearts and their hands to their evil cause. They speak of him as being an imposter, as being a liar, as being a fraud, as being a deceiver. He deceiveth the people. They speak of him as being a blasphemer. He says that he is God, that's blasphemy. And as being one who seeks to turn them away from Abraham and away from Moses. They speak of him as being rejected. Our leaders have rejected him. Look at this whole crowd over here in this corner of the temple. They reject him. They speak of his message as being rejected. Who listens to him anyway? They speak of his words, his works as being rejected. We don't believe that that was of God. And their question as to whether or not he will come is asked with hope that he will come so that they might know where he's at and turn him over to the Pharisees. But there is a second group gathered in the temple. These have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. They have him as their Savior. Their conversation also centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They speak of him as the only begotten Son of God, sent by the Father to reveal the one true and living God to their hearts and to their souls. They speak of him as being God in the flesh, sent by the Father to call sinners from their sins and to call sinners from their man-made religions to forgiveness of sins. They speak of justification. They speak of eternal life. They speak of being free and fully accepted before God who is thrice holy. They speak of his words as being God's message to them. God's prophet to speak to us. God's word as being truth, as being light to our path, as being food for our soul, as being comfort for us in the time of a trial. They speak of his works as being great, marvelous, amazing. And I added, unbelievably outstanding. They do. 
If you've seen some of his works in your life, you've said some of the same things. They speak of his work as being God's mercy toward them. To confirm what he has said to them and to show that he is with them. To those who know him and who desire to be in his presence, the question, will he come, is always upon their hearts. It's the language of God's people when they're in private. And it's the language of God's people when they're having public gatherings. Will he come? Will he come and join us? Will he gather with us as we gather to meet with him? Will he come? Now, why do those who know him, why do those who have a confirmation in their heart that he has chosen them and redeemed them and sealed them as their very own, and why do they raise the question, will he come? Well, first let me say this. Our motive in asking is an expression of our heartfelt desire of His presence in our company. Perhaps, secondly, we ask the question because we view ourselves and as we look at ourselves and what we see makes us believe that He may not want to be among our number. But thirdly, it is certain among God's people that we are not prompted to ask that question because we question God's will to be among His number, to be among His people. Nor do we question His desire to meet with His people. He has shown Himself in the Scripture as being a God who desires to draw close to His people. Do you want to see that truth borne out Look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to the eleven, to the twelve. They didn't understand doctrine. They argued among themselves as to who would be greatest. They failed in their ministry to cast out demons. They questioned him concerning his kingdom. They had all of this confusion, and yet he was with them from the first day to the end. It is not insignificant that John 13 opens up with having loved them unto the end. There is no doctrine of Scripture more clearly shown to us that God delights to be with His people. We know that He delights to be with His people. We know He joins with us and sings with us and sings over us. These things He has promised us in His Word. He said in Proverbs 8 and verse 31, My delights are with the sons of men. That's what He has said. Again He said in Psalm 16 and verse 3, But to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Charles Spurgeon speaking of on Psalm 16.3 says, Poor believers are God's receivers. What a simple statement, but so profound. He goes on to say, For they are the excellent of the earth. 
Despite their infirmities, their Lord thinks highly of them and reckons them to be nobles among men. The title, His Excellency, more properly belongs to the meanest, the old English word that means to the lowest, to the meanest, the lowest saint, than to the greatest governor. The true aristocracy, and remember, Spurgeon lived under an aristocracy. He says, the true aristocracy are believers in Jesus Christ. And I thought, yes, because the scripture says we are kings and priests in his kingdom. Returning to Spurgeon, he who knows them best says of them, in whom is all my delight. Before all worlds, his delights were with these chosen sons of men. Their own opinion of themselves is far other than their beloved's opinion of them. They count themselves to be less than nothing. Yet he makes much of them and sets his heart upon them. Again, I contracted a lot. But if you want to read something that will encourage your heart, go to Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm, 100 and, uh, Psalm, 1, Psalm 16, verse 3. We ask, will he come? knowing that he delights to be with his people. But he also delights to join with them, and he also delights to sing with them. This is the promise of Scripture. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. And the implication in Hebrew is that his love for you. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I've never heard God singing in any of the meetings that I've ever been in. But I believe it's true. Because God's word said it is. Our prayer is, Lord, will you come? Will you come rejoice over us? Will you come save in our midst? Will you come singing over us? And so there's these two groups of people that are gathered in the temple. One, uh, seeking to purify themselves, making themselves ready for the Passover. They're discussing the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to find him so they might turn him over to the Pharisees. The other, having embraced Christ, speak of him as the one who has saved them from their sins. Both are asking these questions. The text proves it out that there was this multitude of Jews in the midst of them asking questions. We come now to verse 57. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it and they, that they might take him. The final verse of John 11 reveals the heart of the religious leaders of the Jews' religion. These man-made potentates who ruled over hard-hearted and blinded and dead sinners were as hard-hearted and blind and spiritually dead as the worst lost sinner. But they had given a commandment and from their religious post... 
The command to reveal the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and to betray him came from the highest levels of the Jews' religion. The common man would have thought our leaders believe that he is a blasphemer. He is not who he says he is. We ought to find him and turn him over. After all, have any of our leaders believed on him? That was the argument used in John 7. The Greek construction teaches us that their command was sent all over Israel. It was a rally cry to the faithful Jews to betray the Lord Jesus Christ by turning him over to the chief priests and Pharisees. Their intention is obvious. This time he will not escape. Now it's not just a few Jews looking for him, but the command has been issued all over the nation. I remember when we were leaving Tripper for the last time, and we found out that the army had surrounded the village that we were in. And, um, and we came walking up, and the, and the commander, he was asking me all these questions, and I, we're walking with baggage to put the baggage in the van, and I, I'm just greeting. I don't know what's going on. I look over to my left. There's military people with their guns out, and, and everybody is just standing there looking at me, and I'm talking to the commander like he's, you know, I just discovered him this morning. I wanted to embrace him. I said, I hope to come back, hope to see you again. Get in the van and everybody's quiet and we drive off and a military vehicle drives up and, and our people are standing there and the commander, his commander says to him, did you get him? No, he's just left. Well, is it true? Has he been supporting the insurgents? Has he been, has he been a forced con forcing conversion? No, sir. No, sir. We've been here. They've been here since four in the morning. And no one would testify against us in the villages, even the lost. And we come to what we later learned was the second outpost that was supposed to, uh, to re keep us from, from escaping. And, and we were supposed to be turned to our left because down the road they had met, formed a U. And when we drove in, they were going to close us up. And the man directed us to our right, which is the way we would have gone normally. And so we come now to the third outpost. And the man is angry. What are you doing here? And he said these words. The whole military and the whole state of Tripura is looking for these two people. And Peter says, they told us to go. And he said, get out of here. And we got on the plane. I said, Peter, what's wrong? He said, sir, I can't talk. And we got home and he explained that whole story to me. The whole military and the whole state of Tripura is looking for these two people. The whole nation of Israel has been given a command. You find him, and you turn him over to me, to the chief priests. This time he will not escape. This time we'll enlist all of Israel, and this time we will take him, and this time we will kill him. That's their intent. That's their purpose. That's the reason they gave the command. And I thought as I was closing out this message this morning, I thought... What are our intentions with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ? There's these two groups that we've seen consistently throughout his ministry. John brings up consistently in his gospel. 
What are our intentions regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we desire that He come and save us? Do we desire that He come and help us? To help us to learn who our God is. To help us to learn the Word of God. To help us to learn what life is about. Do we desire that He come and teach us something of the love of God and something of what it means to follow His ways? Or do we desire that He just leave me alone? I got my own ideas about life and living. I got my own way. It's mapped out before me. I want this. I don't want that. Is that what you're thinking this morning? I hope not. I hope not. Because we see the culmination of that kind of thinking right here in these verses. What a dark, dark place it is for the Jews to be left alone without any further instruction from God. In a few days, the crucifixion will take place. The temple veil will be rent. The religion will be destroyed. The priesthood will be destroyed. By 70 AD, the city will not exist, not one stone upon another. Scattered like leaves to the wind. And to this day, there's blindness upon the hearts of those that will not receive Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later. May it not be so among us. May it not be among us. Whether we understand or not, may it not be so among us that our question is, will he come? If so, I don't want to have anything to do with him. But let him be, will he come? Because I really want to meet with him and I really need some help. Let's pray.